Chapter 7 of The Creature from Beyond Infinity by Henry Cutner. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Creature from Beyond Infinity. Chapter 7 Doom. On the 2nd of January, 1941, Stephen Court left for Canada. His cabin plane contained two passengers and a good deal of equipment. Marion Barton went with him, and he had allowed Sammy to go along. The old man had been reformed in every other respect, but wanderlust can be removed from a man only by the surgery of death. "'I won't be no trouble, Stevie,' he had argued. "'I get itchy feet this time of year, and besides, I never rode in an airplane. Anyhow—his watery eyes narrowed, cunning. You'll need a handyman to do odd jobs. I can help you unpack and other things." To save argument that would waste time, Court had agreed. It was a clear, bitingly cold day when the plane took off from the Wisconsin flying field. Luckily, the weather reports were good. Though there was no danger of snow, Court flew at low altitude, fearing that ice would form on their wings. The excitement of hurtling the plane at high speed made him uncharacteristically talkative. His gaunt cheeks were flushed, and he chatted with the others with unusual animation and warmth. Sammy did not talk much, but he listened and occasionally asked a question. "'Plague, eh?' he said once. "'I was in the South once when a plague hit. It was pretty awful. Kids and women, we couldn't bury em fast enough. I sure hope it ain't like that." "'We'll see,' Court said. "'I can't do much till I examine this fellow Losico. For that matter,' he frowned, pondering, "'I really haven't enough equipment with me. I've got to bring Losico back to my lab.' "'But you say it's contagious,' Marion protested. "'How can we travel?' "'I've arranged that. I'm having an ambulance made ready.' It'll be plated with several thicknesses of lead, which ought to be safe enough. They're sending the car after me as soon as it's ready." "'Oh,' Marion said. She fell silent, watching the mountains and lakes glide past below. "'You know,' Cord observed after a time, "'I came across an interesting angle, a completely unexpected one. I've been getting photographs from most of the observatories. While I found no trace of my X in space, I did notice something else, a satellite of some kind circling the Earth. No one's noticed it before, it's so small and travels so fast, but it seems to be made of homogeneous metal." "'Iron? Smooth metal, Marion, not pitted and rough as an asteroid would be. It's made of pure gold or some yellow metal that resembles gold." The girl looked sharply at Court. "'A spaceship? Possibly. But why wouldn't it come down if it's a ship? Has it been circling the Earth for ages? But where could it have come from? Some ancient civilization might have mastered space travel, though I doubt that. If it is a spaceship, it probably came from some other planet. There's nothing in history about it," Marion said. If one spaceship could come here, probably so would a lot more. 
Nothing in history? No, but there's a lot in mythology and folklore. I'm just guessing, of course. I'm anxious to find out more about that highly unnatural satellite." She was silent, fascinated by the thought. "'How can you reach it?' she asked. "'It looks impossible,' he admitted. "'Space travel is impossible to us today. That's one reason. You see, Marion, if it really is a spaceship, it may mean Earth's salvation. To be completely rational, we must consider that, perhaps, the plague can't be conquered. If it is a spaceship, we may be able to leave the Earth and go to another planet. If those worlds are also in danger, we could leave the system. We couldn't do that with the modern rocket fuels. Suppose that strangely colored satellite is a genuine spaceship, one that has already traveled across the interstellar void. Repairing it would be less work than inventing one. It's worth trying, Marion breathed hopefully. I may fail. That's why I want to find out more about X. The spaceship's a dangerously long chance, and I don't want to gamble everything on one throw of the dice. When I see Losico, Time wore on. Sammy asked innumerable questions about the plague but when he exhausted his curiosity he went to sleep. The plane sped over the border and into Canada. It was afternoon before they reached the landing field. An automobile met them and took them into town, another following with Sammy and the equipment. At the hospital they were greeted by Dr. Granger, a shriveled gnome of a man with one tuft of white hair standing straight up from his bald skull. Court he said in relief. Am I glad you're here. Are you hungry? No. Characteristically, Court did not bother to introduce anyone. Where's the patient? In the left wing of the hospital. We've cleared out everyone else. You'll have to put on the lead suit. We have only one, unfortunately. Court seemed transformed into a swift, emotionless machine. He hastily donned the form-fitting suit of canvas, with leaden scale sewed closely over the surface. As he followed Granger to the door, the physician paused. "'I'd better not go farther. I don't know exactly how far the radiation extends. It wilts gold-leaf at quite some distance.' Court nodded, got his directions, and clumped ponderously out the door. He went along the corridor until he found the patient's room. Any other man would have hesitated before entering, but Court was not like any other man. Without stopping, he pushed open the door. The bare, white-walled chamber was spotlessly sterile. A case of instruments lay open on a table, a hypodermic needle in view. On the bed, a man was sprawled. Peering through lead-infiltrated goggles, Court came closer. Lossico was unconscious. No, he was asleep. His spare, wasted frame was barely fleshy enough to make a visible shape under the coverlets. On the pillow lay the withered, skull face of an incredibly old man. Lossico was twenty-three years of age. His mouth was toothless. Hanging open helplessly, it revealed his ugly, blackened gums. His skull was hairless with ears that were large and malformed, 
and his nose, too, was enlarged. The repulsive skin dangled in loose, sagging wrinkles. Pouches hung slack on his naked skull. Court went to the window and drew down the shades. In the gloom a queer, silvery light was visible at once. It came from the patient's face. Court stripped off the covers, exposing Lossico's gaunt, nude body. Like the ghastly face, it gleamed with a silvery radiance that did not pulse or wane, but remained steady. "'Lossico!' Court called out sharply. When he gripped the thin shoulder, the man shuddered convulsively, and his eyes opened. They were not human eyes. They were pools of white radiance, like shining smoke in eye-sockets. "'Lossico, can you hear me?' Court asked quietly. A cracked whisper came from the withered lips. "'Yes, yes, monsieur.' "'Can you see me?' "'I can. No, monsieur, not with my eyes. I am blind. But I can see you, somehow.' Court frowned, puzzled, as he pondered the weird reply. "'What do you see?' "'You are covered with armor, I think. I do not know how I can tell this. I am blind.' I am a doctor, Court said. If you can talk without pain, I'd want you to answer some questions. Out, monsieur, bien. Are you in pain? No, yes. I am hungry. It is strange. I am hungry and thirsty, but I do not want food. Something I do not understand. Court waited for him to continue. When Lossico did not, he went on with another line of reasoning. Tell me about this fog. There is not much to tell, Lassico said painfully. When I left my home, I could not find my way. The fog was so heavy, and its smell was not right. Stephen's eyes sparkled with interest under the thick mask. How did it smell? What did it remind you of? I don't know. Wait, once... I was in the big powerhouse at the dam, and it smelled like that. Ozone? Court shook his head. Well, he urged. The fog was cold at first, and then it seemed to grow warmer. I had this strange feeling it was getting inside of me. My lungs began to burn like fire. My heart beat faster. I was hungry. Yet I had just eaten. Doctor, Losico said suddenly, without moving, I am changing, more and more. When it started, I did not change much, but now I feel like something that is not a man. Can you hear my voice? Yes, Court soothed. That is odd. My mind is so wonderfully clear, but my senses... I do not seem to hear with my ears, nor speak with my tongue. I feel strong, though, and hungry." His scrawny head slumped, and Court saw that he had lost consciousness. Whistling softly, with grim abstraction, Court returned to the main hospital where the others waited. Doffing his suit, he questioned Granger. "'It's progressive, isn't it? Doesn't the radiation get stronger?' "'Why, yes,' the physician replied. "'For a time, anyway. 
Lossico was fearfully hungry. His metabolism was high, and this radiation got stronger every time we fed him. Yesterday, though, he refused to eat. But he's hungry, Stephen protested. So he says, and still he won't eat. The radiation is much fainter now. I see, Court muttered. Get me a guinea pig, will you? A rabbit will do just as well if you don't have a guinea pig. I want to try something. Putting on the armor again and carrying a wriggling guinea pig, Court went back to the patient. Losico was still unconscious. For the first time, Court hesitated, staring at the pale aura surrounding Losico's body. Then he slowly extended the guinea pig till its furry side touched the patient's hand. Gently, the weak, bony fingers constricted. Closing upon the tiny animal, they did not harm it, though it struggled frantically to escape. The little beast went limp, seemed, amazingly, to grow smaller. Swiftly, the phosphorescent gleam surrounding Lossico grew brighter. "'So that's the way,' Court muttered under his breath. He disengaged the guinea-pig from the skeleton fingers and examined the animal. It was dead as he expected. Court silently returned to the others. "'You haven't been feeding him the right way,' he explained, struggling out of the armor. He gave it to Granger, who put it on. Lossico is changing, slowly and steadily, into some form of life that is definitely not human. At first he ate normally, though in vast quantity. As his basic matter altered, Lossico lost the power to absorb food as we do, internally. He gets the energy direct, like a vampire, to put it melodramatically. He will kill any living being that touches him." "'Good God!' Granger cried in a shocked voice. "'We can't let him live, Court.' "'We must, because I need him. I have to study the course of the plague in its natural progress. Lossico must be fed whatever he needs now—rabbits, guinea-pigs, and so on. I shall take him to my home as soon as the special ambulance gets here.' Sammy shuffled forward, wide-eyed with fear, but desperately stern. "'Stevie, don't take any chances!' Court ignored the old man, as he ignored everyone else when his mind was absorbed. "'Marion, unpack my equipment. The ambulance should be here by tomorrow or the next day. In the meantime, I want to check every angle. Be sure that there's a supply of small animals for the patient. I don't know yet how much energy he needs, but he's broadcasting it at a terrific rate." Granger, clumsy in the lead suit, already left the room. Court looked at his watch. "'Lucky I got here in time. If Losico had died—' "'Can you save him?' she asked eagerly. "'Of course not. I don't want to, even if I could. I want to stop the plague, and to do that I must watch it run its course in a test subject. Losico happens to be the only one we know about. There may be new cases at any time, but I can't afford to wait. For all I know, there may never be another case till the final crack-up. Then it will be too late to do anything." "'What do you intend?' Marion asked, trying to hide her disappointment. "'I shall take Losico back home with me, keep him in isolation, and feed him whatever may be necessary. Eventually the plague will run its course. Lossico may not die, but he may have to be destroyed." The door slammed open, Granger burst into the room, ripped off the lead suit. 
His gnomish face was gray with horror. Court, he's dead. What? Court's jaw trembled with indecision. No, he can't be. It's unconsciousness. But already he was snatching the suit from Granger. Get me adrenaline, quick, another guinea pig. They sprang to obey. Bearing his equipment, Court raced away. The minutes ticked slowly past, lagging unendurably. At last he came back, his shoulders slumped. "'You're right, Granger,' he muttered. "'Lossico's dead. I was too late.' "'You—' the physician hesitated, biting his lips in helplessness. "'You'll want to have an autopsy?' "'No, it's no use. I must watch the progress of the plague on a living being. A corpse is no good for my purposes. I must wait. Perhaps the plague will strike again. I—I don't know." Court went to the window and looked out, his back to the others. "'Take precautions with the burial,' he said after a time, speaking in a strange, tight voice. "'The contagion can still be spread. No one must touch him without lead armor. You will cremate him, of course.' Marion came across the room to stand beside him. "'You're not giving up, are you?' she whispered. "'No, but I'm at a dead end now. Every hour I delay may mean—' The others had shuffled despondently out of the room. "'We're going back, then?' Marion asked. "'Yes, I'll take a few specimens from Lossico's body, but it's useless. I can't bring back life to a dead man.' "'Damn him!' he snarled with sudden fury. Why did he have to die? Marion's lips trembled, and she turned away. Court, after a brief hesitation, replaced the lead-glass helmet and went into the wing. He could, as a matter of routine, take samples of Losico's blood and skin, though he knew that would do little good. Court opened the door of Losico's room and stopped abruptly, catching his breath. The blood drained from his cheeks. He reached out, almost blindly. "'Sammy!' he whispered. "'Oh, my God! You fool!' The old man stood motionless beside the bed. In the dimness his face could not be seen. His scant white hair was pale as silver. "'Hello, Stevie,' he said gently. "'Don't go off the handle now. After all, I'm not so young any more.' and you needed a case of this plague to experiment on. If it's as contagious as you say, I guess I sure enough got it by now." "'Sammy,' Court whispered through dry lips, "'why?' He could not go on. "'Why?' the old man shrugged. "'I don't know. I told you about that plague down south, with women and kids dying like flies. I know what that's like. If I can help you save women and kids, Stevie, I figure I've done a pretty good job. So it's up to you now, boy. It's up to you. Chapter 8 The Mystery of Drogear Ardath was worried. As he sat, immersed in thought, within the laboratory of the Golden Ship, he felt that he was little nearer to his goal. The barbaric hordes that overran the earth in this new era promised little. Only in the far eastern lands did the flame of civilization burn. But would Ardath find a supermentality there? 
would there be one he could take with him to a future age, to find a suitable mate? Or must he go on once more? There was another matter, too. Neither Jansaya nor Thordred had proved as intelligent as he had expected. At times Thordred was almost obtuse, despite his eagerness to learn new things. A flash of suspicion crossed Ardath's mind. Perhaps Thordred was pretending stupidity. But why should he? Ardath, unused to guile and deceit, found the question difficult. He had saved Thordred's life, but humans were completely alien to Ardath. He had come from Kyria, a planet far across the universe. He did not realize that humans sometimes mistrust and hate those greater than themselves, fearing power which, though benevolent, can also be used for evil. Besides, he knew that Thordred was ambitious, for the giant Earthman had conspired to win Zena's throne. Ardath rose from his seat and pressed a lever. The veil of flickering light that barred the doorway died. He stepped across the threshold, and once more the barrier flamed with shimmering deadliness. He stood watching Thordred and Jansaya as they sat near a vision screen, intent on the scene pictured there. Thordred turned his vulture face, sensing Ardath's presence. "'There is nothing new, master.' Ardath smiled somewhat sadly and shook his head. How often must I tell you not to call me master? Because I have more knowledge than you, Thordred, does not mean that you are my slave. This eternal desire of Earthmen for enslavement—' He shrugged bewilderedly, and his thoughts went back to his home planet, Kyria, long since shattered into cosmic dust. Often he had dreamed of that world, which he had seen only on vision screens. Always he had awakened to this barbarous planet where men hated and fought and died for silly causes. Truly the road of ages was long. Yet he knew there would be an end. Even here, in this eastern land, the Kyrian had found a clue. "'Thordred,' he said slowly, "'and you too, Jansaya, I must leave you for a while.' Intent on his thoughts, Ardath did not notice the quick glow that brightened the other's eyes. "'There is a man here I must know, and a mystery I must solve,' he continued. "'Barbarous hordes have overrun this country, huge hairy giants from the north. They are little more than beasts, but at their head is a chieftain called Drogir. He puzzles me. His acts are wise.' His brain seems highly developed, yet he is filled with the violent emotions of a savage. This is a paradox." Jansaya's lovely eyes were narrowed. "'You must leave us,' you said?" Ardath nodded. "'Remain in the ship till I return. There is plenty of food, and no danger can touch you. I have only one warning. Do not attempt to enter the laboratory.' He smiled as a thought came to him. Though you know nothing of the apparatus there, yet you might harm yourselves." "'We will obey,' Thordred grunted, his harsh face immobile. Quickly Ardath made his preparations. As he opened the port he turned, his gaze dwelt on Thordred, and there was a curiously mocking light in it. 
Farewell for a time. I shall rejoin you soon." He stepped out and was gone. The girl made a quick movement, but Thordred lifted his huge hand in warning. "'Wait!' he whispered. They waited, while the minutes dragged past. At last Thordred arose and went to the laboratory door. He fumbled over the wall, and abruptly the flickering veil of light died. The giant's face twisted in a contemptuous grin. Ardath is a fool, he rumbled, else he would never have left his laboratory unguarded, even though he does not realize that I know the secret of his brain. But do you? Jansaya asked. She stood behind the giant, peering over his shoulder into the laboratory. You know nothing of his thoughts since you drew the knowledge from his mind, and that was ages ago. I know enough. Thordred retorted, eyeing the apparatus wolfishly. Enough to handle his weapons, once I get my hands on them. We shall follow Ardath now and slay him. Then this new world will be ready for conquests." "'I am afraid,' the girl complained. "'Do not try to kill Ardath. Sometimes I see that in his eyes which makes me tremble. He is not earth-born. Let us flee, instead, to where he can never find us." "'While he lives, we are not safe,' Thordred growled. "'Come!' He sprang across the threshold and was flung back. A wall of flaming blue light reared viciously before him. Crackling, humming, blazing with azure fury, the strange veil rippled weirdly. Sick with amazement and baffled rage, Thordred drew back a stinging pain in his arm and his side. Jansiah cried out and fled into a corner. "'He... he watches us!' the girl whimpered. "'I did not think so, but now I know he is a demon!' Thordred was ashly gray under his brown, hairy skin. His jaw muscles bunched. Like a beast he crouched, great hands shaking, as he glared at the ominous portal. "'Quiet! He does not watch!' Our death is clever, that is all. I do not understand. One lock on a door is good, but two are better. Our death had put two locks on this one. Thordred growled deep in his throat. Does he suspect me? If he does... He shook his shaggy head. No, it is a precaution anyone might take. Let me see. Thordred approached and gingerly tested the blue wall of light. It was as solid and resistant as metal. It is a new thing. I know many of Ardath's secrets, though not this one. Perhaps I can learn how to destroy this barrier before he returns. Jansaya began trembling with a new fear. If you do not, he may destroy us. Hurry, Thordred! There is no need for haste. Let me see. The giant began testing the wall beside the door. Under his beetling brows the amber cat-eyes glowed as he worked. Presently sweat began to trickle down the swarthy face and run into the black beard. Could he find the secret of the barrier before Ardath returned? Meanwhile Ardath walked swiftly through the forest, his thoughts busy. The Kyrian had already forgotten Thordred and Jansiah. He was pondering the mystery of the savage chief Drogir whose actions were those of a genius, 
but who certainly did not resemble one in any way. In a far later age Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun would ravage the earth as Drogir did now. Centuries later the walled cities of China would again fall victim to the invader, as they had fallen before Drogir. Out of the northern steppes the hordes of this scourge had come, huge, hairy men on horseback. Their villages were crude collections of dome-shaped huts, yurts they were called. Eastward the ravagers had swept, and down the bleak coasts into oriental lands. Westward they had been halted, for a time, by the vast mountain range that towered to the skies. To the south they had swarmed into a land of green, lush jungle and carved stone temples, where men worshipped Siva and Kali, the many-armed. Like an avalanche, the hoofs of the invaders thundered across the earth. "'Slay!' they shouted. Their curved swords glittered, their horse-tail standards shook the chill winds that followed them from the north. Their spears drank deep, lifted, dripping red. Great, beast-faced giants who rode like centaurs and fought like devils, they bathed the east in rivers of blood. "'Slay! Show no mercy! Prisoners mutter and revolt, therefore take no prisoners! Only slay!' Over these barbarians Drogir ruled. Ardath's vision-screen had showed him that Drogir camped with a group of his men not far away but night had fallen before he reached the outposts and was accosted by a wary sentry. In the moonlight the guard's face was like that of a gargoyle. He lifted his spear and held it rigid as Ardath's gaze met and locked with his. A silent conflict flared without words or actions between the two men. As the stronger will mastered, the sentry turned and led the Kyrian into the midst of a group of goatskin tents. Before the largest he paused. A few soldiers were sitting here and there by the fires. They looked up curiously, but none offered to interfere. The sentry lifted the tent flap and Ardath entered. He felt an involuntary tension as he faced the baffling drogear. A few lamps of pottery, with wicks protruding from reeking animal oil, cast a flickering yellowish gleam on the tented walls. There were some beast skins scattered around haphazardly, but nothing more. A man reclined at length on a greasy fur, and he looked up sharply as the intruder entered. Drogir was a giant as huge as Thordred. He wore nothing but a loose robe, which left his shaggy breast bare. His thick black beard was shiny with oil, his long, thick mustache had been twisted into two short braids and tied with golden wire. A fur cap covered his head. His face was that of a blindly ferocious beast. The low brow slanted back, the thick lips revealed yellow, broken tusks. In the shallow eyes was little sign of intelligence. Ardath frowned in wonder. Was this the genius he sought? Chapter 9 Li Yang Drogir surged up in one swift motion. His hand brought out a short throwing spear, which he leveled at Ardath. Li Yang! he roared. Come here! Ardath had already taken pains to learn the language of the barbarian hordes. 
I mean no harm, he began. I merely— Peace, Lord, a new voice broke in. He comes unarmed. Wait. Someone was crouching in the shadows. Ardeth peered intently into the darkness. He saw a gross lump of a man, an absurdly fat Oriental who sat cross-legged in the gloom. Sharp black eyes, almost hidden in the sagging pads of the bland round face, stared back at Ardath. The tiny red lips were childlike, and the dome-like skull was bald and shining. Li Yang wore a loose robe, girt about his bulging waist by a golden cord. Drogir had also swiveled to peer at the Oriental. "'Hear his words,' Li Yang counseled and picked up a lute-like instrument at his side. Idly, he strummed the strings as he gave his advice. There is no harm in words. But Drogir did not release his grip on the spear. He stood with legs wide apart, watching Ardath. "'Well?' he demanded. The Kyrian spread his hands in appeal. "'I come in peace. How did you get through the lines?' That does not matter. I have a message for you." Drogir growled a savage threat deep in his throat. "'Let him speak, Lord,' Li Yang whispered. "'Then speak, but swiftly!' Swiftly Ardath told his story. He was still puzzled, and he grew more bewildered as he searched the dull, ferocious eyes of the chieftain. No understanding woke in them, yet Ardath plunged on explaining his purpose, asking Drogir to come with him into time. Finally he finished. There was tense silence as the lamp sputtered and flickered eerily. At last the soft twang of the lute murmured vaguely. "'What is your answer?' Ardath asked. Drogir tugged at his beard, while his hand was still clenched about the spear. Abruptly the Oriental broke in. "'Lord, I think this foreigner has strange powers. It would be well to make him welcome." The Oriental heaved to his feet, a flabby behemoth from the firs, and the pudgy hand made a swift motion to Drogir. The chieftain hesitated, then his face broke into a wolfish grin. "'Good! We are not enemies, you and I. Break bread with me!' Li Yang shuffled ponderously forward thrust a cake of mealy, unleavened bread into Drogir's paw. The chieftain broke the cake into halves and handed Ardath one, stuffing the other into his capacious mouth. The crumbs that fell were caught in his filthy beard. Warily, the Kyrian ate. Something was amiss here, though what it was he did not know. "'You will come with me?' he asked. "'I am tired of using force.' If you refuse, I shall merely leave you and continue my search." "'Drink!' Drogir roared. He seized a hollowed horn from Li Yang and thrust it at Ardath. The Oriental gave Drogir another cup. The wine was hotly spiced and steaming. "'In friendship, drink!' The barbarian chief lifted the horn to his lips and drained it. Ardath followed his example. Slowly he lowered the cup. Li Yang was back in his corner, strumming at the lute. His voice rose in a monotonous oriental song. 
All men see the petals of the rose drift down, the jasmine fades, the lotus passes." Drogir stood motionless. Abruptly his huge hand tightened on the drinking-horn, and it shattered. His hair-fringed mouth gaped open in agony. Only a choking snarl rasped out. But no man sees his own doom in the falling of the rose. The chieftain's body arched back. He clawed at his throat, his contorted face blindly upturned. Then he crashed down as a tree falls and lay silent on a dirty bear fur. A single shudder shook the gross form before Drogir was utterly still. Ardath caught his breath. His glance probed the oriental sharp black eyes as Li Yang stood up hurriedly. We must go before Drogir's body is found. Most of the men are in a drunken stupor, as always after a victory. Hurry! Wait, Ardath protested. I do not understand. The Oriental's bland face was immobile, but his black eyes twinkled with malicious amusement. Drogir signaled me to give you the poisoned cup. I gave him the deadly wine instead. Listen, Ardath that is your name, I think. Your words were not for this barbarian chief. Ever since Drogir captured me years ago, I have served him with my wisdom. He spared me because I gave him good counsel." Ardath's eyes widened, startled by the simple explanation. Li Yang had been the power behind Drogir's throne. The Oriental was the genius who had inspired the invader. I am tired of being a slave," said Li Yang frankly. Eventually Drogir would have doubted my wisdom and would have slain me. Also, I do not like this savage world. Let me go with you, Ardath, into the future," he glanced at the grease-stained furs, where, at least, there may be more comfortable couches. Involuntarily Ardath's solemn face relaxed in a gentle smile. He could not help liking this blandly frank Oriental, who played soft music with one hand while he administered poison with the other. "'Very well,' he agreed. "'Let us go. What of the guards? Can we pass through their lines?' "'Unless Drogir's body is discovered. In that case, not even I will be above suspicion, so we must hurry.' The two slipped quietly from the tent, and under a swollen red moon they walked through the encampment. Only when the fires had grown dim behind them did they breathe freely once more. Li Yang pointed up to the smoke from the camp that drifted across Earth's satellite. "'Barbarian flames darken the moon-lantern,' he said softly. "'In future ages the smoke may have drifted away. Not for many centuries, though, I think.' Ardath did not answer, for he was concentrating on the brain of the man who walked beside him. Presently he sighed with an emotion that was close to despair. His quest was not over. Li Yang was wise, far ahead of his time in intelligence, but he was not the super-being Ardath sought. The search must still go on through the eons, but Li Yang would be a good companion to have, despite his shortcomings. After a while they came in sight of the ship. The Oriental's lips quivered, though his face remained immobile. 
The chariot actually flies? he asked in awe. It is truly wonderful, like the fabled dragon of Sti Shan. On the threshold of the golden ship Ardath paused a moment. His gaze went to the blue curtain that flickered across the laboratory door. Then he looked sharply at Thordred and Jansaya, who were rising from their couches. Jansaya's elfin features betrayed nothing, though there was a hint of fear in the sea-green eyes. Thordred's beard bristled with apparent indignation. "'It is time you returned,' he growled. "'Look!' he pointed toward the laboratory. Silently, Ardath entered, Li Yang at his heels. Ignoring their apparent interest in the Oriental, he lifted his brows in a question. "'Enemies!' Thordred grunted, his yellow eyes angry. "'They came from the forest. I—' he looked away involuntarily. "'I opened the door, which was wrong, I admit. But I was curious.' "'Go on,' Ardath ordered, unemotionally. "'Well, the barbarians saw us. They came toward the ship, yelling and hurling spears. I shut the port and barred it, but they hammered so hard on the metal I feared they'd break through.' "'No spear can pierce the hull,' Ardath replied quietly. "'Jansaya was frightened, and I was weaponless. I thought I could find a weapon in your laboratory, but when I tried to enter—' He made a quick, angry gesture toward the threshold. You do not trust us, I see." "'You are wrong,' Ardath smiled suddenly. "'I take precautions against possible enemies, but you are not my enemy, Thordred. The barbarians fled?' "'They gave up at last,' Thordred blurted hurriedly. "'But if they had broken in, we would have been slaughtered like trapped beasts.' Ardath shrugged indifferently. "'It should be forgotten. We have a new companion and soon we must sleep again for centuries." Thordred said nothing. His eyes were veiled, but slow rage mounted within him. Again he had failed. Not completely, though, he had not betrayed himself, and as yet Ardath suspected nothing. They must sleep again, yet they would awaken. Thordred's fist clenched. The next time he would not fail. End of chapter 9